I want to start with a story this morning, I think, that helps us get started. See, there was this minister in this town in Kentucky, and the sheriff came into his office one day and said, I need you to conduct a funeral. There's a homeless man in our town that has passed away, and he has no family or means with which to be buried. So we have decided we want to bury him in the pauper cemetery, but we need you, if you would be so kind, to officiate the ceremony. Would you, would you do that? And he said, of course I would do that. And then the sheriff said, well, if, if you'd know anybody that you could bring that could play some music, music would be a great thing to do for this man. And he's like, I think I know exactly who I want to ask. And so he went and he asked this young man who just moved into town, and he recalls the young man saying that he played the bagpipes. And so he went to him and said, here's the situation. Would you be willing to play at this man's funeral? And have you ever done that before? And he says, oh, I've done that many times. I, I would be honored to do that. And so he said, okay, the funeral is tomorrow. You're more than welcome to ride with me. And he says, no, I'm, I'm pretty good with directions. Just write them down. I'll, I'll meet you there. So the next day arrived, and he pulls his bagpipes out, and he puts them into his car, and he heads out toward the pauper cemetery, except he can't seem to find it. And he's driving, and he's driving, and he's driving. He finally, he realizes that he's lost. So being a man, he just keeps driving, and he... <laughs> And finally, because it's his mission to find it without asking directions, he arrives at the gravesite an hour late. And he's devastated because the minister is nowhere around. And he's like, you'll never ask me to do this again. So he puts his head down on his steering wheel and he's thinking, what do I do? And he says, well, the least I could do is play. So he pulls his bagpipes out of his car and he goes up to the gravesite and he looks in and sure enough, the vault's already in the ground and the workers are eating lunch. So with all the might he musters, he starts playing Amazing Grace at the graveside, at the graveside, and he does probably the best job he's ever done playing that song, because partway through, he sees that the workers have gathered around him, and they themselves have started singing as he's playing. And he finishes, and he sort of just drops his head, and just like, oh, and as he starts to walk away, he hears one of the guys say, I have never in my life seen anything like that. And I've been putting in septic tanks for over 30 years. <laughs> See, I tell you that story because if you're headed to an important destination, you need to know how to get there. And if someone offers to take you, you need to take them up on it. And that's why during this series, we've been following this path. We've been following Jesus' way of making disciples. He's the one that shows us the way. And so when we look at a path, what we see in a path is that there's movement, right? When you, a path indicates there's movement. And as we've looked at this series, we see that there's movement in the life of a person who comes to see Jesus. And we've seen that people are invited to come and see Jesus. We call those on-ramps. People are invited to come here on a Sunday or a Saturday, or they're invited to come and play in the play center, or they're invited to come explore Christmas on Kid Street, or maybe they just come and have coffee with us, or they have dinner with us, or we just hang out together. And we say, just come and see. But we don't just say, just come and see. We say, discover the plan that God has for your life. And that next step, people start discovering that God exists and he does have a plan for their lives. 
And as they discover that, he reveals it to them. And at some point, they either commit or they don't, but they commit to following Jesus' plan for their life. And in doing so, we see that they do that with others. That we're called to do that with other people along the same path, on the same journey that we are, as becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we do that, as we say here, in small group, with other sojourners. And out of those sojourners, we also see that he calls people to lead. Not everyone leads, but he does call people to disciple. Everyone that he calls, he has a plan for their life. And part of that plan is that they would make disciples, that they would then go back and do for what others had done for them. And we see that. There's movement, spiritual movement in the life of a disciple. But a path also tells us something. There's a destination, right? The path is going somewhere. When you get on a path, don't you want to know where it's going? So where is this discipleship path going? But before we get to where it's going, let me tell you where it's not going. All right? It does not lead to your justification. It's a word we talked about back in the Roman series. It's a word that we use in church that Scripture uses, and it's a word that sometimes is misunderstood. But that justification word is God's declaration of the believer that they have been made righteous, declared righteous in God's sight, not by their works, not by following the right steps, But by the grace of God, by the love of God, they have been declared righteous when they are given faith through the power of the gospel. The discipleship path does not lead to justification. The discipleship path is a path of sanctification. There's another, like, $2 word. It's a a word that means becoming holy. We were declared righteous just as if we'd never sinned, but we walk along the path of discipleship as Jesus makes us holy. Let me put it like this. I've been married for a little over 34 years. I have not been earning my right to be called Terry's husband. I was pronounced her husband 34 years ago when we exchanged vows. And the minister said, you are husband. But for the last 34 years, I've been figuratively and literally growing into the husband that I have become today. Am I the perfect husband? Really? (laughs) No, I'm not the perfect husband. But I'm becoming the husband that God has designed me to be. And he has a plan for my life as he has a plan for the disciple's life to become the disciple that he longs for you to be. And that's why we say this path leads to becoming more like Jesus. It's a path that leads to making more disciples, but it's a path for the disciple to become more like Jesus. Did we ever become Jesus? No. We become more like him as we follow him, as we obey him, as we follow his path. And we do as he tells us. You know, we started this series with this verse, these verses out of Matthew's gospel, the 28th chapter. It's the Great Commission. Maybe you've heard it put that way, where Jesus calls his disciples to him in Galilee on this mountain, and he says to them these words. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus' disciples took this command very seriously, as evidenced by all of you here in this room this morning. They took his command seriously because Jesus said these words. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is standing before his disciples and us this morning, claiming and being God. God himself commands his disciples to make disciples. It's not optional. He says, this is my plan for your life. As a disciple of mine, you should go and make disciples. And that's exactly why they did it because they came to know Jesus as God. That's who he claimed to be. That's how they write about him. He himself is God and gave them that command, but he just didn't command them. He did so in a way that empowered them. He loved them. And he poured his life into theirs and made them great promises. And they followed him. And as a result, the world changed. So this morning, I thought it would be good for us to look at one of those disciples, to sort of see this movement in the life of this disciple, a disciple we've talked about often in this series, the Apostle Peter. I think we look at Peter, as we've seen in this series, you can find yourself in Peter. There's a part of Peter's life that every one of us can relate to. Peter. What can we learn from Peter? What can we learn about discipleship from Peter? Well, we see that Peter was invited to follow Jesus. It was his brother that said, Peter, come. We have found the Messiah. And when Peter comes to Jesus, Peter, Jesus looks at Peter and says, you are, son of, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. His name was Simon. Jesus renames him Cephas which is Aramaic, translated into Greek as Peter, but the literal translation of the Aramaic word Cephas is rock. Peter, you will be called rock. And if you know anything about Peter, it wouldn't be surprising to hear Andrew overhear his brother snicker. Really, Peter, my brother? Do you know him? But see, Jesus isn't calling him for who he is. He's naming him for who he will be, who he will become. That's what Jesus sees in Peter. That's what he sees in the disciples that he calls. Not who we are, but who we will become. And he takes Peter, as we see, and calls him out of the disciples along with James and John, and he invites them to lead other disciples. And they will be leaders in his church but not until he's done with them, not until he's done what he needs to do in them, because we see that work continue in Peter's life because he's not yet the rock. We see one day that Jesus is on the shore of the lake and he's teaching the people and Peter and his associates, John and, and James are cleaning their boats and they'd been fishing all night, we're told, and didn't catch a thing. And so Peter, or Jesus gets in the boat and asks him to, put out and he teaches from the boat. And then he tells Peter, take us out into deep water and let's throw your nets out into the water. 
And Peter's got to be thinking, seriously, a carpenter's going to tell a fisherman how to catch fish when we've been out here all night and haven't caught a thing. <laughs> and so he says to Jesus, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Not that we're going to catch anything, but I'm going to let down the nets just to show you we're not going to catch any fish. Peter's a little bit condescending to Jesus at this moment. But what we see happen is that he casts down the net and he catches so many fish that he can't pull it in. He signals to his friends to come out and help him bring the catch in. And when that happens, we're told that Peter falls down on his knees and grasps around Jesus' legs and says, I should not even be in your presence. And Jesus doesn't look down at him and say, see? No, he says, don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, I will make you fishers of men. I think Jesus, or Peter, felt at that moment. Completely undone, but then completely restored. Peter had to feel joyous that he was going to use him still. But Peter continued to be Peter. And we see, as taught to us by Matthew, that Peter took Jesus aside one time. When Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the authorities, killed, and raised from the dead. What does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, no, not on my watch, not happening. You, anybody recall what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He speaks truth to Peter, some harsh words to Peter, but exactly what Peter needed to hear at that moment. Jesus spoke truth. But he did so from within a relationship with Peter. But again, Peter just still doesn't get it. The night that Jesus was betrayed, several years later, we see they go into the upper room and Jesus takes off his outer clothes and he puts on an apron and he gets down and he starts to wash their feet. And Peter cries out, he's like, no, you will not wash my feet. I, I should be washing your feet. I need to do something. And Jesus says, no, I must wash your feet. You are to have a part of me. I must wash your feet. I must declare you righteous. There's nothing you need to do here. Peter said, well, then wash everything. Right? Peter, he's back and forth. But then later that night, Jesus says, I need to go out, and I need for this to happen. And once again, Peter steps up and says what Peter says. He's like, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will give my life for you. You don't have to die. I'll give my life for you. And Jesus looks to Peter and he says, Peter, I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And you see, Peter's like, no, not going to happen. Not going to happen. And so they leave and they go out into the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas, one of the 12, has betrayed him and brings the Jewish guard to come and arrest Jesus. 
And as they come and they approach him and they reach out to grab him, Peter reaches down and pulls out a sword, trying to cut the guy's head off and misses and slices his ear off. And Jesus looks to Peter and says, put away your sword. He bends down, he picks up the man's ear and reattaches it to his ear, to his head. John Lennox, Christian apologist and theologian, I believe has some beautiful insight into this passage. He says, what we learn here is that you will never, ever be effective in defending Jesus with violence or through hatred or anger. When you do so, all you do is you cut the ears off of people and they will never hear what you have to say. We need to follow Jesus and do whatever we can to keep the ears upon people so they can hear the truth of the gospel, that Jesus loves them and that he died for them. But they will never hear us if we follow Peter's lead. So we follow Jesus. That's what he was trying to teach Peter and his disciples. You'll get nowhere with violence. Nowhere. They take Jesus away. Jesus and Peter follows, and what does he do? He denies him three times. And then the rooster crows. You can just picture Peter kind of like, oh, really? He's never going to ask me to follow him again. And he goes away and he goes back to fishing. And Jesus is crucified. But then a couple days later, he rises from the dead. And Peter and his friends are out on a boat fishing, we're told. And Jesus is walking along the shore, and he fixes a meal for them, as we heard several weeks ago. And Peter rushes out of the boat, clothes and all, swims to shore. And he has this conversation with Peter that John records, where Jesus restores Peter, where he asks him this series of questions, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? want to know more about that, go back a couple of weeks and listen to that podcast. Jesus restores Peter. What Peter probably thought would never happen. He could never use me again. Jesus says, feed my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep. And Peter's restored. But he's still not perfect. Because as we read in John, just after that, he tells Peter, Jesus tells Peter these things. He says, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will be stretched out, your hands will be stretched out, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said, to the, said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then Jesus said to him, follow me. But then out of the corner of his eye, Peter catches a glimpse of this other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's John. And you sort of sense through the story that he and John have this ongoing competition as to who's the greatest, as to who's the favorite. Right? It was John, the younger, that beat him to the tomb that morning. You know, it's a lesson we learn, you know, that, that just be, they're younger, but they're faster. But he gets there faster, but Peter goes in first. So you sense there's this competition between the two of them. And it's still there. 
Because Peter looks over his shoulder and he sees John and he says to Jesus, well, what about him? And Jesus looks to Peter and is like, you don't need to concern yourself with him. Follow me. You don't need to be concerned about comparing yourself with others. This constant competition as to who's the greatest and who's the best. It leads nowhere. Follow me, he says to Peter. Follow me. That's the call to each and every disciple. To not worry about what she's doing or what he's not doing. But to follow Jesus. That's what he tells every disciple. And that's what he told Peter. And that's what he tells us this morning. And then Jesus ascends back into heaven. And he promises the Holy Spirit. And on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And everything changes. Now this timid, bold, boastful, prideful, afraid man is now proclaiming the gospel that Jesus himself is the Messiah, the, the God of the universe that they crucified, but that he has come to make a way back to God. And so we see in the book of Acts, Peter preaching boldly. We see Peter healing the sick at the temple. In front of the same people that crucified Jesus, Peter now is proclaiming him to be the Messiah boldly empowered by the Spirit. And they bring John and Peter in, and they're intent on either killing them or persecuting them or beating them. And Peter stands up before those same people that crucified Jesus and preached boldly. And it says so boldly that they were taken back and didn't know what to do, so they let him go. <laughs> and the whole church praises God for what God had done that day. Not for what Peter did, but what God did through Peter, the rock. God had transformed Peter. But Peter still wasn't perfect. Paul tells us that a time came when there was a time in the church of Galatia where Peter was there and, you know, there were Gentiles and Jews and the Gentiles weren't clean and there were those in Jerusalem that thought you didn't eat with unclean people. But Peter was associating and eating with Gentiles, but then he found out there were people from Jerusalem coming, and he was afraid of what they'd think about him, so he stopped associating with the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul calls him out in front of everybody and says, you're wrong. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ that you were taught or I were taught or that we have taught. He says... But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. But Paul says, that's wrong, Peter. That's wrong. And we read in Acts 15, Peter's response. Peter doesn't stand up and justify his actions before the council. He takes Paul's position and says, Paul's right. Paul is absolutely right. That is not the gospel. So when his wife tells him, Tony, that's not very Christ-like, instead of arguing and trying to defend my arrogance, I need to confess my sins to my wife and to my Lord. Just as Peter. To experience that forgiveness of God. God is still working in Peter. 
He's not done with them yet because he's still not perfect. And we see later in his letters, this is how Peter writes about Paul. He's not even holding a resentment. He says, our dear brother Paul. And he tells the people that he's writing to that they need to listen to what Paul is saying because he equates what Paul is saying to Scripture. Can you imagine the younger Peter doing anything like that? This is about 30 years after Jesus was crucified. About the year that Peter himself would be martyred, that he himself would be crucified. His church tradition teaches us that he was crucified by Nero, but upside down because Peter said, I don't deserve to be crucified as my Savior did. And so we see this man who was once this impetuous, bold, proud young man become this humble servant of Jesus. Because he met Jesus and was transformed by Jesus. When you read these two letters, you see Peter, but you certainly see what Jesus saw, the rock. Not someone perfect, but someone who was set on becoming more and more like his rabbi, more and more like his savior. And as a result of all of those disciples taking that command seriously, we sit here today. They didn't overtake Rome with a sword. They overtook Rome with the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Peter, we see Peter undone, completely transformed by the power of God. Jesus himself told his disciples as he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They were not undone by the command. They were undone by their Savior who lived that command. Who did love the Lord, his Father, with every part of his being. And he loved every human being that was, is, or will be conceived so much that he gave his life for every single one. Peter and his disciples and those that have followed in their footsteps have been completely undone by the love of God. And Jesus says, now you go and love the same. And you start to get a picture of what perfection looks like. And you start to understand that I'm not anywhere close to being there yet. And what we see in Peter's life, a few other lessons. We see that it doesn't end. This discipleship path, the journey doesn't end until death. It doesn't end at retirement. It doesn't begin after college or when the kids' activities are finally completed. It can't start too soon. As Jesus said, do not keep the little ones from me. We need to teach the very youngest what it is to be a disciple with our words and with our actions. Because that's what Jesus commanded us to do. We need to introduce our children and to everyone who will listen to Jesus. And we do so with our words and with the love that he gives us. Because we love because he first loved us. 
And so Jesus says to Peter and to his disciples that day, and surely I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He didn't send them out in their own power. He promised that he would be with them each and every day of their lives. And I am sure Peter experienced that. He experienced his Lord walking with him every step of the way, changing Peter into the man that he would become, as he promises to do with each and every one of us that call him Lord and Savior. As we were reminded last week, we just need to get out of the boat. It's not something that we do once. It's something that we continually do each and every day of our lives because he promises to change us He promises to change us by the power of the Spirit into the image of his Son. Become more and more like him. To love as Jesus loved. To preach the truth as Jesus preached the truth. With the love of Jesus. Because when we do, when we listen to our Master, when we listen to our Lord, when we listen to God and follow his commands, our lives are changed. They're transformed. And it's with those imperfect lives that he changes those around us. He changes communities and he changes the world as we follow him. We follow his witness. He is our Lord. He we follow. And he promises to each and every one of you that if you will take that seriously, If you will take that command seriously, you will see the person that Jesus sees in you. Amen. Would you pray with me?